influence cultivate our motivation. And for a minute, imagine what it would be like to cherish others as much as yourself or more than yourself. What would that feel like inside? If that were just a natural part of who you were, you didn't have to uh, force it. So what would be different about your internal experience if your mind spontaneously cherished others more than self? If you were completely free of that self-centered attitude. And so in this way, seeing the benefits of releasing our self-centeredness and cultivating the mind that cherishes others. Let's set our mind on doing that with a strong determination to fulfill our all of our potential in Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. So if you, in your imagination of, you know, what it would be like to cherish others more than self, how would it be different than how you are now? What would you have that you don't have now, and what wouldn't you have that you do have now? Yeah. Can I just share an experience I had? I was sitting there listening to you, feeling compassion and cherishing everybody. I sort of started with my family and then people in here and, and then everybody else. And then when you got to the place where, okay, now set your motivation so that you can do that, I thought I just did. It was like, you brought me. <laughs> Does that make any sense? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I, I guess I haven't done it yet. I was, still, I was still kind of fantasizing somewhere that I had accomplished. Okay, see, this is one thing, uh, an important point to clarify. Having compassion for everybody isn't the same as bodhicitta, okay? Having compassion is the wish that beings be free of suffering. Bodhicitta is the aspiration to attain full enlightenment, to be able to lead them out of suffering, okay? So one of the causes of bodhicitta is compassion. Compassion precedes bodhicitta. But just because we want to be, we want beings to be free of suffering doesn't mean that we've yet made the determination that we're going to become Buddhists to help that come about. Okay? This is actually quite an important point because sometimes we, we think, oh, just feeling loving towards people, that's bodhicitta. Mm, no, that's a cause of bodhicitta. Yeah, feeling loving, wanting sentient beings to have happiness, it's very good, but it's not the determination to become enlightened for their benefit. Because yeah? even the hearers and the solitary realizers have that kind of love and compassion. Okay? But really deciding that you know we're going to 
follow the whole path to enlightenment to bring that about, that's a whole other level. Now, coming back to the... Can you wait, please? Um, Coming back to the question I asked, what would be different in how you were as a person if you cherished others more than self? What would it feel like inside of you that was different than how you feel now? Um, my thought when you asked that question was that um, any little aches or pains or whatever that I have, they wouldn't even be on the radar because my mind would be so focused on, I'm here because I, I have this great aspiration, so that's why I'm here, so my focus would be there, and so I wouldn't have all these distractions. Um, so that, that's what I thought about. And, and I would also be different in that, because right now it's like, it's kind of hit and miss if I actually did something to help someone. And so it's like, well, good luck, I hope it helped. But if I really had that spontaneous wish, that, that would just be front and center all the time, every single activity that I did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're saying that all your little aches and pains wouldn't be on the radar. And you would have a lot of confidence that what you're doing is actually beneficial. Mm-hmm. So focused. Yeah, because you're focused. Okay. Yeah. I had just fleeting, fleeting feeling of ease because there's of, so much of what? ease. Of ease. 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 Okay. Associated with cherishing others and. I heard someone else bring up their animals, but I was listening to a drama talk that said, just start where you have easy, unconditional love. And I thought of my dog, and she's actually on the clouds of offering to a Chinese. I've been having fun with that. Um, but there's such a pleasure in just her being, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I have this feeling of ease and cherishing others before myself. And what mm-hmm. I don't have when I don't do that is fear. It's just. When I put myself first, even though my thoughts are all of comfort, what do I need right now? What do I need to do for myself? It's very fearful. It's mm-hmm. very, very fearful. Mm-hmm. Why is it fearful? It's like that fear of not having comfort, of not being happy. Of and that fear of not being comfort, not, not having happiness, is itself misery, isn't it? <laughs> So you're saying when uh, when you were free of the self-centeredness and focused on others, that you wouldn't have fear mm-hmm. about your own welfare. And it's like delight in other people's. I mean, I get that a little bit with my animals. Yeah. I want to that yeah. So a lot more sense of delight and happiness yeah. Yeah, that you would have. Uh-huh. I actually had a um, physical response when you said that. Uh-huh. My heart just went... Light just went out, and it was just uh, the word that came was peace. Mm. And what I I, actually kind of surprised me was that it felt like um, armor plate got blown off. Yeah, I think that's that self cherishing. Right, right. So you would be free of that um, that the restriction of um, self protection. Yeah. It relates back to this fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking of it and contemplating, what came to me was um, the abundance of energy that would be available. Mm-hmm. That you would just be so light 
A lot of available energy, a lot of lightness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is what I was going to say. Is it, there'd be so much more space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once you get the self-centered thoughts out, there's so much space for light to come in. I think of it almost like equalizing exchanging, you know what I mean? Like almost like that stuff goes out, and then what comes in, if you're focused on the light, it comes in. Mm-hmm. It can come in. Yeah. Well, I... I was thinking of it in terms of on-the-ground practical bodhicitta. Say you're in a grocery store and some guy jumps in front of you in line and instead of viewing that person as an enemy, you view that person as yourself in your present or past life. And that person is, while you're not being angry about it, but but welcoming him and putting him first in line, you're getting rid of your old karma. So you're giving yourself the gift, purification, and that's what that's what Bodhicitta is really about. It's about purifying yourself gradually over time so that you can attain enlightenment. Yeah. I just got a vision of a life without any insecurity and how good that would feel. And yeah. it's not anything about you that just goes away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's quite amazing, isn't it? You see how that self-centered mind is so hooked up with insecurity, with fear, you know, with self-protection. And it's so confining, isn't it? Really, quite painful. Mm-hmm. What came to mind for me was um, having a sense of right speech and right action, and thinking of a world that's like that. And and here it seems like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so with right speech and right action and the kind of peace that that creates amongst people and how good that feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking that I, I would have a meaningful and purposeful life and if I lived my life that way and what I wouldn't have is so many obnoxious people around me. <laughs> way to get rid of them. <laughs> Best way to get rid of them. <laughs> uh-huh. I felt kind of free from this impossible task of, um, it kind of hooks to what Megan said, of making ourselves happy, keeping ourselves safe. It's impossible. Yeah. And so it's like, that's the fear thing for me, is I'm trying to do something that can't possibly be done. Okay. And it just creates mm-hmm. this incredible anxiety. Yeah. Okay, this is a good point. So that when the self-centered mind is trying to make ourselves always happy, and yet in samsara that's something totally impossible, 
And so we're always revving, going around. I've got to be happy. How can I make myself happy? How can I lighten up my duckies? And, and so much anxiety coming from that. Because we're trying to do what cannot be done. Yeah. We're trying to do something impossible. So no wonder there's anxiety. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That if when we're just doing... When we're accepting what is as being what it is, then we're not anxious about it. Yeah. But the anxiety comes when we're trying to do something that's not possible. It's not that we get anxious over doing something that's possible. Is it, think about that, you know? Just, when you get anxious, are, are, you, are you anxious over something that's possible to do? Are anxious over something that's impossible? Are you anxious over something that's possible to happen? Or something that's impossible? Yeah? Because I think so much of our anxieties is we've created, you know, this pie-in-the-sky image, which is never possible. And so we get anxious over not getting that. When, whereas when there's a certain acceptance of yeah, this is a good choice. Yeah, this is beneficial. And there's going to be problems. And that's okay. You know, then we don't get anxious about, you know, trying to squeeze the round peg into a square hole. You know, we're just like, okay, this is a good direction to go. But it's not going to be perfect. And I accept that from the beginning. So then, you know, I don't need to be anxious about it not being perfect. Because I already know that, I already accept it. Because yeah. when you think about it, you know, our anxiety is because we have some image of some perfect something. Yeah. What do you think when you look at your anxiety? Is there some kind of false clinging to something involved there? Some squeezing yourself and others into something that's not going to be? Or trying to undo something that is done. Yeah, we're trying to undo something that's already done. You know, even like we say, you know, I'm anxious about, you know, my grades or my, my, what is it, my evaluation at work or my this or that. Again, isn't that anxiety because we have some image of like the perfect grades, the perfect evaluation, the perfect whatever it is that we want and we're anxious about not getting it. Whereas we just say, okay, well, realistically, if somebody evaluates me, they're going to say some good things and they're going to say some bad things. Yeah? <laughs> Isn't it? So why am I expecting a, an evaluation at work that's only full of good things? Because <laughs> I'm me. Okay? <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that reason that, that proves all syllogisms, because I'm... <laughs> yeah, I think anxiety uh, is about um, trying to have control over things you don't have control over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Having control over things we, I don't have control over. Yeah. Trying to make something perfect that is not going to be perfect. Trying to control what we can. You pick a flower and it's perfect, and you realize it looks perfect, and you put it in a vase, and then tomorrow it belts. 
perfect dependency and permanent because dependence arises. Yeah. And if you if you start to view things in, in their impermanence, you can push through the fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. There was I heard once uh, one person was saying that when you know she she has a beautiful new cup, then she thinks the cup is already broken. Yeah. Why? Because it has the nature of transience built into it. Yeah. So it's already broken in the sense that there's no way to prevent it from ever breaking. Someday it will break. So if in our mind we look at it as it's already broken, then when it breaks we're not going to freak out. And as long as we, it isn't broken, we're going to appreciate having it. <laughs> yeah. So some people might say, oh, that's so depressing, thinking it's already broken. You know, I get so depressed, I can't enjoy using the cup if I think it's already broken. Or I can't enjoy using it if I think it's going to break. But, you know, that's taking us way out of what is right now. Yeah, of course it's going to break. I mean, everything that comes together is going to separate. Yeah, one of the first teachings we hear in the Dharma. Yeah, it's about transience. But and if we accept it, then the mind is actually a lot more peaceful. And you know, okay, we might not have this pizzazz feeling of like, woo, this is it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know how it is when you fall in love. It's like, this is it. There is nothing better than this. Yeah. But then if you think, but, you know, this too is going to end, then, you know, you accept that when it happens and you enjoy it when you have it. And you realize that there's no use clinging on to it. And that clinging, you know, causes so much pain in our lives. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how much clarity and ability to concentrate would be in my mind, because so much of my self-centered thought is my is my my novel writer, you know, that fills up my mind in meditation and every part of my day, writing stories about what I think is going on, what I want to have go on, what isn't working. So just to have all of the novel go away and all the stories go away, to have this clarity, this ability yeah. to focus on a virtuous object and be able to maybe stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Retire the novel writer. <laughs> One of the beautiful things of aging when you reach a certain point is that you, it's, re- it's real real. That you're counting the days from death to here, not from birth to here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you just suddenly go, "What's important?" Yeah. You know, it's like, and worrying about things is not important. It's uh, it's a waste because there's only a limited time in this lifetime. You know? Yeah. It's only a limited lifetime. That's why the meditation on death and impermanence is so important. Okay, so spend some more time thinking about that. You know, and not only thinking about it, but really imagining it on a gut level. 
you know, suppose I really didn't have this cherishing, you know, incredible self-preoccupation, and I really cherished others, you know, really pretend you have that. And what's the difference in your gut feeling about life? Yeah. So not just intellectually thinking about it, but really imagining it. Now, what would be the difference here? Yeah. And I think there's something very important about being able to imagine these things. Because if we can imagine it and get some taste of it, then we want to go towards it. Mm-hmm. If we're just thinking intellectually about it, it's nice, but you know, it's not going to shake our old habits. So this is somehow the same way that, um, you know, doing the deity practices, you know, either generating yourself as the deity or the light coming in you, just imagining those things gives you a way of thinking of who you are and your relationship to the rest of the universe in a different way. And if you can imagine it, then you see you can actually become that way. Okay, so we were... Oh, yeah, right. Okay, I know why. Okay, so 54. The suffering of the world is the result of self-centeredness, while its happiness is the reward of cherishing, the reward for cherishing others. Only you, protector, can provide the confidence that this is so. And so that's... I read these two verses from Bodhicharya Vatara yesterday, and this... Uh, reinforces the meaning of this verse. And those two verses were, whatever joy there is in this world all comes from desiring others to be happy, and whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from desiring myself to be happy. Okay, what need is there to say more? The childish work for their own benefit, the Buddhists work for the benefit of others. Just look at the difference between them. So really spending some time like that. Just look at the difference between them. Now, think of somebody who's quite self-centered, like ourselves. <laughs> think of, of a Buddha. And, you know, what's the difference between them? <laughs> we all, you know, think of somebody self-centered. Oh, yeah, I know. Think of that. <laughs> I know. One of those obnoxious <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> See, I surprised you, <laughs> like ourselves. <laughs> okay. Then 55. All those, uh, although others revere the victorious ones, they revile sentient beings. But you respectfully serve even the unruly as if they were Buddhists. Okay? So there are some people who have so much reverence and de- devotion and everything for the, for the Buddha Dharma Sangha. I mean, this total faith and devotion and generosity and bend over backwards to do anything for, you know, their spiritual mentor and Buddha Dharma Sangha. But when it comes to sentient beings, you know, they, they revile them. They are disgusting and obnoxious and... Okay? But you, great compassion respectfully serve even the unruly as if they were Buddhists. So somebody with great compassion looks at people who are unruly and serves them as if they were Buddhists. 
So I've had a, a, there's a few instances that really stick out for me uh, illustrating this. So of the, the um, first one, although others revere the victorious ones, they revile sentient beings. I remember when I uh, lived at a Dharma Center in Italy, um, our teacher lived in a little villetta, and everybody wanted to go work in that villetta, you know. I mean, kind of to be near our teacher, I want to wash the dishes, I want to cook, I want to clean, um, you know, anything to be near the teacher, elbowing each other out of the way to bring tea to our teacher, you know. Um, and, and, but then, you know, this, there was always enough help to, to help in the letta with our teacher. But to help in the main kitchen, nobody wanted to do that. <laughs> nobody wanted to, to clean the rest of the institute or wash the dishes of the people at the courses or the residence dishes or take out that garbage. But to do it for our teacher, we were all tripping over each other to do it. Okay, so it did really, you know, it was like very pointed to me the the way, um, yeah, just everything for the triple and sentient beings are like, Bleh, you know, uh, and you see that very often, you know, people kind of um, very generous to to build a Buddha statue or or something like this, which is definitely meritorious, but if you ask them to uh, you know, for for a donation for a project for people who are suffering, or even to help the ordinary monks and nuns, they don't want to do that. Okay, so a lot of uh, bias here. Okay, and what's missing in the understanding is that the whole reason the Buddhas became Buddhas was to be able to benefit sentient beings. So the Buddhas cherish sentient beings more than themselves. So if we really respect the Buddha, then we're going to cherish sentient beings. The same way you can see in a family when parents, you know, they're so attached to their children. And if you do something nice for the child, the parents are just delighted. You know, the parents aren't looking for something for themselves. But if you do something nice for their child, they just feel so happy. So in the same way, you know, if we do something nice for sentient beings, it's something that delights the, the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Okay, unlike sentient beings who are partial towards the holy beings and partial against sentient beings, the Buddhas will take even very unruly sentient beings and treat them with incredible respect and kindness. Yeah, and I remember I've seen a few instances of that that have been um, uh, quite quite amazing. Um, unfortunately, Karen isn't here, but she was there at, at one of them. We were having um, uh, Karen was the woman who was here at the very beginning who had to leave early. Um, we were in India at uh, at Gunsar Jamba Techchok's uh, place. And he would always cook us dinner, and it was so embarrassing because he would sit on the ground and put us up on chairs, and I'd try and sit on the ground, and he said, no, you sit up on the chair. I'd try and help him. No, you sit there. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, 
so one night he was in the process of, you know, he's a very good cook. And, and, you know, and he would, uh, he was giving us some food. And there was one beggar who came to the door. And Rinpoche just five, you know, very quietly, you know, went back and got a blanket and gave it to the beggar. And he didn't say anything to us. Karen just happened to notice it as it was happening. Yeah. And so just this this quiet way of helping somebody who needs help. Okay? Some of you have heard this story, but uh, <laughs> when I... Um, I was helping some Chinese nuns who were visiting Nepal and they were visiting our, our monastery there and I had arranged for them to have uh, lunch with one of our teachers. And this was a big privilege, you know, having lunch with our teacher was like a <coughs> big thing. It didn't, you didn't get to do that very often. And I was only getting to do it because I was helping them. So I was pretty excited about this and, you know, wanted to hear the conversation and everything. And so we get up there, and we no sooner start talking than this um, one man comes in. He wasn't Sam. He was one of Sam's <laughs> friends, <laughs> okay, who was equally as difficult to be with as Sam. If you don't know who Sam is, read Working with Anger. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so this this guy was... he. He, in some ways, he was really worse than Sam, um, <laughs> according to my mind. And um, so he walks in, uninvited, not even knocking. You know, you're supposed to go through the attendant and get permission and knock. and None of that. He just comes <coughs> And there was a big meeting going on of the international organization. And he walks in and he starts saying, you know, I've worked so hard in this organization, and here during these meetings, these people are criticizing me, and they can they tell me I made a mistake here, and they don't like what I do there, and they say, all I'm hearing is complaints, na 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 na, and I'm going, I know why they're complaining. <laughs> I know why they're criticizing you. It's no surprise to me. Uh, of course. I wish I didn't say that out loud. And so I expected my teacher to kind of, you know, say the same thing. But, you know, maybe there's some ways what you can improve. Maybe. Our teacher didn't say anything like that. He said, you've been serving the organization so well, so nicely. You've been really putting all your energy out to help. And, you know, these things are natural and don't take it to heart. The people are just, you know, kind of venting their frustration. And, you know, and went on and on. I'm like, Rimshe, you've never worked with this guy. <laughs> He's really something. And, uh, and, and this guy just stays there. You know, it's not like he just came to, to dump on Rinpoche and then Rinpoche sues him and he leaves. He stayed there the whole lunch talking so that my friends and I never got a chance to say anything, you know. And I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it was a perfect illustration of, uh, 
but you respectfully serve even the unruly as if they were Buddhas. You know? Yeah. So I've heard you tell that story before, and I never can get, I don't understand it, because, and here's my ordinary response. Uh Um, He's indulging a very, how, how is it helping to indulge a very self-indulgent person, and why is it okay to be rude to people? Okay, so in the conventional sense, it looks like he's indulging, indulging a self-indulgent person and being rude to guests from other countries. Actually, when we left, I apologized to my friends, and they said, no, that doesn't matter, no problem. It could be, you know... Because maybe I needed to learn something. (laughs) And that maybe the the possibility of me learning something was was more beneficial than indulging him. And maybe this guy just needed the encouragement. You know? Maybe by feeling, you know, cared for by our teacher, his mind would soften. Because I, I, I once heard once heard Lama say, because I was always trying to you know kind of be in there and do the, and serve my teacher, and there were always other people doing it, and I couldn't do it. And um, and I remember Lama once saying, you know, sometimes the teachers uh, keep the people who are the the worst disasters closer closest to them. <laughs> so, I felt very comforted by that <laughs> because, because this guy, this guy, Sam, there was another one from Germany. Actually, Lama used to call one from Italy and the one from Germany. One time he called them Hitler and Mussolini. <laughs> I said, oh, <laughs> Mama did this with a lot of love, not like me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, so these people were the ones close to, to our teacher. And so, I mean, clearly he was doing what he could to guide them as, as best as he could.
laugh at yourself or you cry. Or <laughs> 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 both, yeah. Okay. Verse 56, we understand by the magic of your skillful means that in obtaining the state of victorious one, the Buddhas and sentient beings are both equally kind to us. Okay? So, yeah, we can understand by observing the skillful means of the Buddhas, how, or the Bodhisattvas even, how the bodhisattvas are completely dedicated to serving sentient beings and right there with the sentient beings. You know, why? Because they know that obtaining the state of, in, in, to obtain the state of Buddhahood, the fields of merit of the Buddha and the fields of merit of sentient beings are both equally important. Okay? So, and they're both equally kind to us in that way. In other words, Okay, to become fully enlightened Buddhist, we have to create an incredible amount of merit. Yeah, I mean, that's why it takes three countless great eons to become a Buddha uh, by the Paramitayana path, but it doesn't take nearly that long to, to become an Arhat by the Srivaka path. Why? The difference is in the, amount, is in the amount of merit that you have to create on the Bodhisattva path. The realization is this of emptiness is the same, although the bodhisattvas train in realizing emptiness from a variety of different viewpoints, but still the realization is the same. So that the reason the path is longer is the incredible amount of merit we have to create to become Buddhist. Okay? So to create that merit, yeah, we need the, f- the important fields of merit. So, of course, anybody, anything is a potential field in which we can create merit. But there's certain fields of merit that are more, that, that due to their relationship with us, yeah, become more powerful uh, fields of merit in relationship to us. So one is the field of the holy beings, the Buddhist bodhisattvas, arhats, okay, or whoever are spiritual mentors. So those beings are the field of merit because of their virtue and because of you know, their kindness in guiding us on the path. So any karma we create in relationship to the three jewels and our, our spiritual teachers is especially strong. So that goes for good karma and for bad karma. Okay? Then another field of merit is our parents of this particular lifetime. And that's because of the particular kindness our parents showed us in this lifetime. So again, the karma we create with our parents is especially strong, either the good karma or the bad karma. Another field of merit are sentient beings who are poor, who are in need, who are in suffering, who are sick. Okay? And so they're... um, uh, those are the, the field of compassion because you know, they, they are, are in intense suffering physically or mentally in one way or another 
And so there are also very strong fields of merit. So whatever we do, either to help them or harm them, becomes especially strong. Okay? So this verse is saying that to become a Buddha, we need to create a lot of merit. So we do this by making offerings to the three jewels, by making offerings to our spiritual mentors. Okay, that's what the field of merit, the field of virtue. And also by making offerings to sentient beings, especially our parents and those who are needy, who are poor, who are ill, who are troubled, who are traveling, you know, different sentient beings in need. Yeah. And so we, we make offerings to them. Now here, it could uh, when we're talking about offerings, it could be material offerings. It could be also offering our time, offering our service, okay. offering the Dharma. So there's many ways to make offerings, many things to give. In terms of sentient beings, we give them love, we give them protection, support, encouragement, things like this. Okay? So... In our path to enlightenment, because we need to create so much merit, yeah, we all, we need not only not only the three jewels to create merit with, but sentient beings to create merit with. So therefore, sentient beings are kind to us, and we need them very much to create merit. Okay, because to be generous, we need a recipient to practice ethical conduct. We need to avoid harming somebody. To practice fortitude, we need somebody who's harming us. Okay, so we we need other sentient beings. Uh, they're the you know the field with which we create strong merit that is that we is dedicated for our enlightenment. So, you know, somebody here with great compassion is seeing the role of the Buddhas and the role of sentient beings as being equal in terms of enabling us to attain enlightenment. So I think this is very important to, um, to think about because sometimes we really do have this mind that, you know, bend over backwards for the three jewels, you know, and do anything but, but disregard for sentient beings. Yeah. So we want to grow beyond that. Some people are the opposite, you know, help sentient beings. But, you know, do anything with the three jewels of their spiritual mentor, forget it. So, you know, different people are, are different regarding that. But to, to see both as important and to realize that we need all of them to attain enlightenment. And I think this is especially um, can be a very strong meditation when because bodhicitta is generated independence upon each and every sentient being. Okay, so we have to have the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of each and every sentient <coughs> being. It's not just for the people who are kind to us. It's not just for the people we know. It's not just for friends and family. Okay, it's for each and every sentient being, no matter who they are, how they treat us, what relationship we're in. It doesn't matter. Okay, and so... If you really think about it, then when you see the mosquitoes and there's some mosquito, you know, flying around or some spider on the wall or a grasshopper or a bee, yeah, or a dog barking at you or Sam and his gang, you know, (laughs) you can look at any of them 
And you say, my enlightenment is dependent upon them. Without them, I can't become enlightened. And it's, that's really true. Without them, if I leave them out of my love and compassion, there's no way I'm going to get to Buddhahood. I'm shooting myself in the foot. So I need them. And they're kind to me in that way. Okay? And I think what is especially helpful here is when we talk about the bee or Sam or whoever it is, to remember that how they're appearing to us in this life is not who they are. Yeah. I mean, the appearance of this life is so strong and how beings appear to us in this life, we take it as real and this is who they really are. But actually, you know, they're not their habits. They're not their body. They're not their opinions. There's just, you know, a mind stream there that's taken a body. There's different habits, you know, different karma. But there's no concrete person that is, you know, with a specific fixed personality or essence in there at all. Yeah. And so to stop making the people we either like or the people we dislike so concrete because they aren't at all. Yeah. And this question about merit always puzzles me. In the rest of the field, you know, we visualize them. It looks like the difference between Arhat and Buddhahood is only one ring, you know, and it's, it's not that far. But when we think of needing the difference between three or seven lifetimes or whatever it is to be an Arhat and three countless great lines, it's like, what is that merit? What is what is it about our our the taint of self grasping? I and mean, is that all the merit is trying to do to overcome? What, well, the no, the realization of emptiness is what overcomes the self grasping. So the arhats have that too. Okay. What is so special here is that to really have the energy to uh, accumulate the, so much vast merit and to use the realization of emptiness to completely purify the mind. We need the bodhicitta motivation to do that. Okay, And bodhicitta, especially if you look in, in chapter 1 of this book, it talks about how much merit you create by practicing bodhicitta. Because bodhicitta, its field is all sentient beings. So anything you do you're, is very vast and multiplied because it's done for the benefit of all sentient beings, not just for one sentient being. And it, it takes that incredible amount of merit to, you know, boost the mind up so that you get all these different powers, you know, because an arhat has some, you know, they may or may not have different levels of psychic powers, may or may not be able to make emanations to serve sentient beings, may or may not be able to tell, you know, the karma of sentient beings, who they have karma with, how they can help them, what, what kind of teaching is most appropriate for sentient beings. So you need a tremendous amount of merit to have those powers and to have the proper motivation for using them. So that's why you need to create so much merit. Yeah. If you liberate yourself, it's quick and easy, comparatively. Got myself out of samsara. That's one sentient being. Yeah. 
But to really think of leading all sentient beings and what you, you know, the kind of capability you have to have inside of yourself to lead all sentient beings to enlightenment, it's a completely different ballgame, you know. I mean, when you practice the bodhisattva path, you really have to. I mean, the fortitude that is required must be tremendous because you're having to put up with, you know, what we were talking about yesterday. We give, you know, even in an ordinary way, we try and help people. We give them advice. They don't want it. They do the opposite. They swear at us instead. This is what bodhisattvas deal with day in and day out. You know, it's like they've been trying to lead us to enlightenment since beginningless time, and we're still here. Why? Because we just dismiss them and we criticize them and we do everything, you know. So if we're going to be a bodhisattva, we're going to have to put up with all of that kind of stuff from sentient beings and not take it personally and be able to just have love and compassion in response to them. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of inner strength, yeah? So when you were talking about the bodhicitta motivation and cultivating that altruistic intention yesterday, and you were using that example of like even when you're eating and stuff, and it seems like this is a really important tool for decompiling the ego. But I'm trying to understand like how in a very pragmatic way, like, what are the mechanics of it? Like, if I'm washing a window or mopping a floor, is it more of an abstraction? Like, um, I'm washing this floor and cleaning away the negative karma of all sentient beings. I mean, is that a bodhicitta motivation, or how... How can you bring bodhicitta into the things you do in your life? Yeah, everything that you do. Yeah, okay. So, um... Yeah, so in in one way, you know, mopping the floor, cleaning the dishes, you think I'm, I'm clean, cleansing the defilements from sentient beings' minds. You know, you can say that, yeah, and, you know, I'm cleansing their defilements so that I can, you know, in practice for when I become a Buddha, I'll be able to do that. But then that could actually take you off on a whole thought about what does it mean to cleanse defilements. You know, and what are defilements and how do you cleanse them? So it could actually lead you into a broader kind of thing to think about while you're washing the dishes or whatever. On another level, if it's um, somebody else's turn to wash the dishes and they're nowhere to be seen, then the way you can practice is say, now I have the chance to offer help. So I'm going to wash the, the, the dishes for the benefit of sentient beings. And I'm going to wash them with a happy mind, not with a mind that is subtly pointing a finger at this person because why aren't they there? Because they should be on cleanup crew. you know. But really with a happy mind to offer service, I'm going to do it. And so use it as an opportunity to train and transform the mind. Okay. Okay.